Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. Welcome, 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 welcome. In case you didn't know or have never listened to one of these podcasts before, the podcast is recorded live at 5 p.m. GMT, which is 9 a.m. Pacific time, uh, every Tuesday on discord.gg forward slash great game master, great GM, and you can find us there and join in the fun and have live chats and so on and ask questions of these shows. Now, we do vote on the content of the show on the YouTube community channel. Uh, if you head on over to the community tab, I should say, in the YouTube channel, you'll find I do a poll every Monday asking what this show should be about. So if you want to guide the conversation, come along and cast your vote there as well. Today we are talking about my two parties, my two groups that are playing in the same campaign, in the same world. And uh, it's been an interesting journey. These are my experiences and hopefully will help you either to avoid the mistakes I made, to perhaps embrace some of the solutions I found to tricky problems, or to, well, just reflect on what an insane idea it is and uh, to just never do it. Or maybe you do it on a regular basis, in which case this just hopefully will help you know that you are not alone in the trials and tribulations. All right, so I reckon the best place to start is to tell you a little bit about the campaign world so that you have some context as to what the player parties are going through. So it is in a world that I created a long time ago called Braxia, and this version of Braxia is set roughly 500 years in the past of my normal setting for Braxia, where dragons rule each of the different nations as gods. And they positioned themselves as gods 5,000 years ago, and no one has ever challenged it or lived to tell if they tried or not. And the dragons have basically just been these large overlords. Now, the dragons fight primarily one another, not personally, of course. They send their armies of loyal humans or elves or uh, orcs or whatever the nation they happen to control into battle to try and prove who has got the best nation, if you will. Kind of like a World Cup series, only for war and violence rather than for sport. However, there was a group of small dissenters who decided that the status quo should change and that the old gods, the forgotten gods, of which there are six, should be restored to power. Well, at least that is the basis of the campaign that I proposed to the two different role-playing groups. Did they want to be part of the rebel group, where they were fighting to destroy the dragons, or did they want to be part of the loyalists group who were trying to hunt down dissenters and traitors and make sure that the world continues as is? Well, the two parties chose literally opposite uh, roles to play, and not by my urging by the way. I presented it to them. It was their choice. This is how I run all of my games. They could have chosen anything, and that is how the game would have played out, but that's what they chose. So the rebels started running around trying to figure out just how they could possibly take on the dragons, and that required them to start understanding where the dragon's power came from, and to a degree sussing out exactly what was going on. You see, the dragons had woven this mysterious religious cult of the dragon around themselves, and so what little information existed about the actual dragons was sketchy at best. 
So whilst the rebels were running around trying to figure out just what the hell the dragons were, I had another party running around who actually worked for the dragons. Not directly, mind you, remember the dragons are an enigmatic bunch, but for an order known as the Black Talon. The Black Talon was effectively a religious order, an extension of the priesthoods of the dragons, but their responsibility was to root out heretics and to find ancient and evil weapons that were designed to kill dragons. They would find these weapons and armour and magical items and then destroy them. So that was the path that the two parties started on. However, I started them both in the same adventure. This was the destruction of one of the large cities in the uh, world, and it was a destruction by an invading elvish army that also happened to involve lots of undead, and the parties may or may not have encountered some illithids who were masterminding this entire attack. Well, things got a bit complicated. The rebels formed an alliance with some tieflings and promptly discovered that they had maybe been instrumental in causing the entire city to burn to the ground, whilst the other party, the rebel hunters, and that literally is the name of the campaign, discovered the illithid connection and were powerless to stop the city from being destroyed anyway. But they went off and managed to save a whole bunch of werewolf children from being consumed by undead and becoming undead werewolves. Which I'm not entirely sure what would happen to them on a full moon, but it wouldn't be pretty. With the groups happily split and heading in very different directions, I never once tried to steer them towards each other. Although there were many, many times where the group would do something dramatic or of national interest in one town, and that information would filter through. So this is one of the things that I had to pay a lot of attention to whilst running these campaigns. And bear in mind, they are still running. We are nearing the end of the campaign. The players have now started to put into place the final solution, I guess, to the campaign. It is an epic campaign, so that means there is a giant nemesis which they are angling to try and defeat but they are not there just yet. The thing that I had to take into account was the idea that whatever the party did, the effects had to be taken into account. And every single time the party did something, quietly in the back of my mind, usually not during the session, usually after the session, I would reflect back and look at how that would affect the world for the other player group. So particularly, let's say, when the one group went off to the druid um, village of Denneth Wald, they were identified, this is the rebels, they were identified by the local Black Talon operative. Now, they then ended up murdering that Black Talon operative, and so when more Black Talon arrived, there was no trail for them to follow other than one of their own having been murdered. That filtered back to the rebel hunters, who were informed that there has been some activity in the north, but there was not a lot of information to go on. 
That's one example. Another example is NPCs who survive. And in one particular instance, the rebels were using a particular orc by the name of Bjarkal to act as their personal shepherd. He had a ship that was vaguely seaworthy and they were using the ship to get about as much as they could. The rebel hunter party encountered Bjarkal recently, only the rebel hunters were masquerading as historians and so basically looted this poor orc's mind for all the information they could about the other party. So NPCs that cross both parties need to treat both parties equally in terms of giving information if it would make sense. Bjarkal was a particularly trusting individual and unfortunately the rebel hunters are, I say unfortunately, it's unfortunate for Bjarkal, not for anybody else, are very silver-tongued and managed to convince him that they were allies and so he spilled the beans. This is just pure, pure fun for me as the GM because, well, I've got two groups basically spying on each other. Another thing that was of particular importance when it comes to these kinds of effects is the one party would frequently use the sending spell to try and communicate with the other party. There had been one instance early on in the campaign where the two player groups hadn't got together, but they had brushed shoulders with one another and I got permission from both player groups to roleplay their characters ever so briefly in the exchange. At the time, the two groups didn't know about each other really and weren't that interested in one another either. But it was enough for those spells to be able to be used and occasionally they would send 25 word messages to one another. Now, the difference is the one group was playing on a Sunday afternoon, the other group was playing on a Wednesday morning. And so oftentimes we're not online at the same time to answer those messages. So we kind of hand-waved it, because we needed to, that the sending spell, because it was sending over continents in some cases, or unbeknownst to the players, over a hundred yards, as occasionally happened, it would simply take a 24-hour period to get a full response in. I cannot tell you the joy that I would have taking a 25-word message from one Discord group to another Discord group, pasting it in and waiting for a response. And particularly because the one group loved to sign their messages, Love Baz, the name of the one character. So it would be a case of, the Black Talon are coming for you, Love Baz. Uh, whereas the other party would say things like, Help! We need a distraction! We're all gonna die! And then, of course, the response would be, How can we help? Love, Baz. So there was a lot of fun time going on between that, and I never really intended for the player groups to ever get together. I didn't see really how it would work, and I didn't want to impose any time frames on any one particular group. And besides, the two parties, and this I feel is critical, had signed up for slightly different campaigns. The one had signed up for a more action-oriented type of campaign, whereas the other had signed up for more cloak-and-dagger politics politics I should say and so I didn't really want to force the two groups together which I think has worked out very well although the campaigns have slightly shifted over time as the groups have revealed their true PC colors 
This is something that I find happens a lot with players is that they come, they come into a game with a very strong idea of what their character is. But after six months of playing, that character has shifted and, and become more of a character and less of the player as the player has explored different ideas and things. So nonetheless. So the other thing that's very important to keep in mind with regards to these effects, with regards to NPCs and interactions between two groups or more, is that it is only the critical events that need to be timeline specific. So, for example, when the run group recently just triggered an entire planet-wide planar travel um, anti-protection magic spell preventing any extra planar communication or activity and banishing any extra planar creatures to their relevant planes, that's a pretty big event. For that particular event, I tried to get the two player groups together. I successfully did it. We played on a Sunday. It was very interesting to watch. They did it, but I had given them explicit instructions that at the end of the session, they had to come up with reasons why their characters wouldn't stay working together. And they did very good jobs of that split apart and picked up the following week in their own private sessions and carried on from there. When on occasion major events have happened, like for example the rebels maybe causing the entire capital city to be turned into glass, they did manage to really anger one of the dragon gods who just decided it was easier to annihilate the entire city than try and find four little PCs running around inside of it, that news got back to the other party pretty damn quickly. But of course, I've got two groups running, and one group could say, well, I'm going to take the next week to just take a long rest. How do I match those timelines? Well, quite specifically, I keep time fairly vague. I use it every now and again. It is a wonderful pressure tool and we always need to have those little if by the rising of the third moon, the fifth son of the twelfth child of the postman's wife, sister's cousin's uncle's daughter-in-law hasn't yet plick, pick, uh, picked a rose from the bush, everything will end. Sometimes there are moments where we need those time frames, but the other players don't necessarily know what's going on in terms of timelines, so you can compress and expand as you need to. Think of this very much as a cinematic moment. Uh, it is literally the speed of plot analogy that is used often in filmmaking. How long does it take to drive from one side of New York to the other side? Well, it could take an entire movie's worth, or it could take literally a few seconds. It really doesn't matter. These are not things that are super critical. So as GMs, we don't need to be super critical of these things either. If you did do that, unfortunately, things would quite simply grind to a halt. The one group who have a tendency to make decisions faster or who take naps or rests more frequently would simply get ahead in any kind of logical calendar and it just wouldn't be practical to keep track of them. You'd either have to rein back the group and say, well, no, you only get one day. You can do this in one day and you can't take more than one day. And I think that that would kind of defeat the idea of the campaign in the first place. Another thing to bear in mind is that as these campaigns have grown, they are 
I would say fairly complex in their plot structure. Both player groups asked for a campaign that would run for a year or more. We're a year and a half into both of them. I think we're on session 40 or somewhere along those lines of actual play sessions that we've played through. And obviously there is a huge potential, especially in my games, for there to be lots and lots of different NPC plans running around that the players can get bogged down in or that they can get mucked about with and get confused. There were several times in the campaigns where I had the one group of players go, we need to sit down and just try and figure out what are critical adventures for us to do? What are plots that we can abandon? Now, they're the ones using the words plot, by the way. I always use the word plan. My NPCs had their plans and the players were involved in them. The plotting was all on the player's side of things. So one of the things that is very, very critical is as I move towards the end of this campaign, it's about closing down all of those extraneous plots, all of those extraneous plans, or tying them into the bigger plot. So I've spent a lot of time tying a lot of separate plots into the main story. Oh, there was this bunch of tiefling assassins who were doing this. Well, you thought it was going to be part of that. Actually, it's linked to something in. It's something bigger. It's something part of the bigger plan that somehow connects. I try and find those connections or the players find them for me and I just nod and go, yep, that was the connection. Now, these sessions, just to answer one of the questions in chat, these are run over Zoom. My players are all in the USA and I'm sitting in frigidly cold London at the moment. I think it's frigidly cold. Uh, so there we are. And uh, when we do joint sessions, we have seven players on Skype. They are all very good at being very polite with one another and not talking over each other. And I, of course, I use my method of moving between each and every single player to get them to give their opinion and their voice to make sure that everyone gets the right amount of time. Another question, since we're on questions, is what happens when one party does something that globally affects the other party? Uh, well, quite literally, it affects the other party. The first example of that was when they both parties literally missed each other by about three days. Give or take the loose calendar that I use in infiltrating a secret enemy stronghold. The one group went in through the back door and discovered this ancient artifact, which was an obelisk that seemed to be floating above the ground. They decided to activate it, which they did. The other group arrived three days later to discover this activated artifact. They didn't really know what it was doing until they actually activated the magic of the artifact. And that caused a large bubble of about a thousand miles to expand in all different directions, immediately expelling all non-extraplanar uh, creatures. This may or may not have precipitated a full-scale war, uh, 
but the effects were felt across both parties. So the moment the second party game session started, where they happened to be, I kind of kept track in my head loosely. Okay, it's an afternoon. Uh, so yeah, probably the next morning is when this event happened, because I remember my other group, it was in the morning that the event happened. So then the next day, I would then trigger that cataclysmic event. And it was wonderful to watch the players go, wait, what? What now? What's just happened? The other group, for example, the rebel hunters, who, by the way, halfway through the campaign, after having hunted down so many rebels, actually converted to the rebel side and are now trying to defeat the very dragons that they were worshipping, they started a very rigorous approach of trying to dismantle the Black Talon, the dragon secret service that uh, tried to enforce the power of the dragons. Now, their actions were so militant and so effective that wanted posters went out all over the world for this party. Now, the unfortunate thing is that the rebels, the actual true original rebels, may or may not have done some stuff similar and so got confused as one big band of seven and so suddenly the Black Talon was hunting all seven of them. It was glorious when the rebel, the rebels walked into town to see posters on the wall and they went, wait, we didn't do that or that. We didn't do that either. Furthermore, there was a wonderful, wonderful moment where the Black Talon started to execute a thousand people a day until the rebels and the rebel hunters came forward. The rebels didn't even know that this was going on because they were hiding out in the woods doing all kinds of wonderful things out in the woods. So thousands of people were dying. They've now returned to the city, and the executions have stopped, by the way, and they can't understand why people find it confusing that they know nothing about these mass executions. So there is a lot of fun and uh, shenanigans that go on with that. Another thing that I have done quite deliberately is to try and never include red herrings. The campaign is complex enough with two groups running around, launching insurgencies, rebellions, resurrections, and all kinds of wonderful things all over the place to have red herrings included as well. So from a story perspective, it's pretty straightforward. From the journey of how that story is unfolded, it's incredibly complex. And hopefully when the players get to the end of it, they look at it and go, huh, that was amazing. A few more questions. So if one party's session ended in a big explosion that would take out the other party, would the other party's session be all about escaping the blast? And to be perfectly honest with you, the answer is an emphatic yes. That is exactly what would happen. As a matter of fact, and hopefully none of my Sunday players will be listening to this, the Wednesday players, the Rebel Hunters, may or may not have accidentally released an ancient water elemental the size of an ocean into the middle of a desert nation. This ancient elemental is now turning that desert nation into a water-based nation, and the other group are about to find out when a large tidal wave comes towards them. So there we go. Another question, do you think when the campaign ends you will have both groups together fighting the same cause? Aha. Well, this leads me to my planning in terms of this entire thing. 
Because both groups individually started these campaigns, it makes sense in my head to have them individually conclude these campaigns. They're both hunting the dragon gods, but they have discovered over the course of their adventures there are only a few left. The idea that there were dozens of dragons in charge was apparently a fabrication that the dragons perpetuated to make them seem more powerful than they are. As a result, the two groups can happily go off and hunt dragons together. But once they have defeated the dragons, there will need to be a session where the two groups get together and decide the fate of Braxia because there is a large power vacuum which is currently sweeping across the uh, nation. The party have basically exposed the dragons for the liars that they are. The dragons are not yet dead and have all fled to go and do something against the party. The parties don't know what yet. Uh, but there's a giant power vacuum which both parties are now starting to experience. The other thing is, because this is an epic campaign, both groups are effectively in command of some significant resources. The one group was very good at convincing individuals to join their cause. They have a stable of about 35 NPCs, give or take, that they turn to for help and reliance upon a spy master, a sky captain, a religious fanatic, a, a, um, teleportation specialist, and so on. The other group was quite good at gathering nations and armies about themselves. And so uh, the two have had quite different journeys. What I've done to try and balance it out, because, well, how do you balance out the PCs basically having the entire Orcish war nation at their um, beck and call? What kind of magical item would balance that out? Well, I've given some pretty powerful relics to the other party who don't have entire nations behind them. Uh, maybe they do have a small army of ogres, however. Let's uh, look to see any other... Uh, no, uh, yes, there's another question. Uh, when running multiple groups in the same campaign, what form of note-taking do you take to keep facts straight? This is the joy of using the NPC planners to really drive the campaign. So I know what my dragons, the ultimate nemeses of these games, are doing. And because both parties are fighting against the dragons, the nemesis plans have remained pretty much the same. Those nemesis plans are coming to the fore now as they are no longer relying on their secret organization, the Black Talon. Now, the Black Talon was made up of various individuals known as Calexes or Calexes and or Calexes. We never decided on the final uh, naming convention, but a Calex and the first Calex were in charge of the Black Talon. They had different plans for how they were going to deal with the two different groups. So it wasn't too difficult to keep track of that. For giant events, for massive events, I have a notebook that in the front section is for the one group and then the back section is for the other. If the group did something of significance that would really affect the other party, I would make the same note in both different entries. So group A would get, they triggered this to happen and are now running away from it the other group would get, this has happened, no one knows why. 
And if they went and explored that, I could then go back to my notes for the other group and try and see what they what they have done. And uh, so there we are. That is part of it. Now, another part that I wanted to talk about very, very briefly is in terms of the overall approach to ending this. So I've spoken about them both trying to kill the dragons and that sort of thing. There are power vacuums that are forming and the parties are forming political lines as well to try and see who is going to do who. But recently, the one group have ventured the idea that, well, why should they help bring back the old gods who were defeated by the dragons? Surely if they can defeat the dragons, well, then they should rightfully become the gods, or at least one of their member. Remember the character who signs off every sending message with Love Baz? Well, Baz's name has been put forward to become a god. That's an interesting one. Now, the other party, just to be clear, they've entreated the ancient gods for help and have also spurned the ancient gods. I have no idea what's going to happen at the end of the game, but all I can tell you is that the ancient gods definitely know that this is happening. Remember that whole omnipresent, uh, omnipotent type of uh, thing that gods have got going? These gods, by the way, were not affected by the planar bubble that was created around the planet, as gods are linked to the plane in which they are worshipped in my game world. So the gods of the plane, the prime material plane, it's a D&D campaign, they are stuck on the prime material plane. That means if you go to the celestial planes, there are different gods there that rule the celestial planes just as much as there are different gods that rule the hellish planes. And they can't really, well, now none of them can get into Braxia except for the ones that are based there already. The end game, whatever that turns out to be, is on the horizon. I would say maybe the next three to six months, depending on what the groups do. I don't know. I know what my NPC's plans are, but those plans are about trying to end it as quickly as possible. But dagnamit, both groups are very good at hiding their minds from scrying spells and from lurking in dark and dank places and avoiding those kinds of things. And then making very public displays in very different parts of the world before vanishing into thin air. Uh, so it's tricky to find these little rebels that are running around. And um, so there we are. Now, another question is, since your gods are tied to the planes, is there anything in the divine hierarchy that is perhaps extra planar, something bigger than those gods? There might very well be, but it's questions like that that I don't need to answer until my players ask them. And even then, in this particular instance, I don't think that I would say that they are there, that there's a bigger, higher power watching all of this play out. I feel like that's just adding more politics to a religious layer of cake that just doesn't need to be there. I don't think it would add anything to the campaign, especially because I'm now in the wind down where the player characters are determining how this campaign ends. No longer the NPCs are running it. So to introduce another NPC force or faction in the form of higher gods, I think would just muddle affairs. That's how I run two parties in one campaign. Thank you for asking your amazing questions. Uh, there's one more that's come in, which I think is very important. 
Involving an adversarial pair of groups, when let's say one group knowingly or unknowingly sends their assets to take or destroy the other group's assets, what would your course of action for handling this as to not evoke any feel uh, bad moments or, or things like that? Well, the rebel hunters completely as annihilated the devils that were in an alliance with the rebels. This caused quite a lot of complications. It was thankfully, well, let's just say a bittersweet parting for the rebels who may have overcommitted to those devils and that particular alliance. It was an interesting one. However, if the two parties ever did go head to head against one another, both of my parties knew when they were getting involved that this was going to be two parties in the same, same campaign world and that there were significant risks that the two parties might interfere with one another, potentially steal one another's NPCs or even murder or assassinate one another's NPCs and disrupt plans and the like. And that hasn't really happened as the two groups quite quickly learned that it was better to share and to work together than it was to work as individuals. That's it from me this week. Thanks for hanging out. That half hour went by really quickly. I hope you have an amazing week. I hope your role-playing sessions are cool and full of amazing and wonderful events over the next week or so. And until next Tuesday, I wish you and yours the very happiest of gaming.